You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Pray before um, we dive into this passage. Father, thank you for the opportunity that it is to gather with your people today, um, really for me numerous times, um, and to look at the scriptures and to hear from your word and to ask and invite your spirit to um, do work in our hearts. Your word is very clear that when your word is open in front of us, that it kind of strips bare um, the intentions and the deep desires of our heart. And so, um, God, I ask that that's what you would do tonight in this place and this time for us. And I pray that you would just capture our attention and turn us to the cross of Christ and remind us of the glories of heaven As we look at this passage, um, I know that as we get ready to turn to the passage we're headed to, that it's it's kind of a it's a rough passage. Been following the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and the conflict has moved to just an intense place. Jesus has some tough things to say to us, and God, I pray that Your Spirit would help our hearts to receive that. But I, I I know that all of us comes to this place in this time tonight with different desires and passions and longings and wants in our heart. God, we just need you. We just need you. Because you're the only one that can satisfy us. So God, I pray that you would come. I pray that you would come and satisfy this evening. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Luke chapter 16. That's where we're going to be at this evening. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received Your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. Now he was comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said... And I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I will be really honest with you guys and say that 
after preaching through the Gospel of Luke now for nearly two years, when we come to this passage, as I've been sensing over the last couple of weeks of preaching through this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, and as that conflict has escalated, as I come to this passage, this is one that I would not readily choose to preach to anyone. And there's a reason for that. Deep down inside of me, I struggle with wanting people to like me. This is not a passage you preach when you want people to like you. As you read this passage, you get a sense of kind of the old style, hellfire and brimstone, right? Heaven and hell, two destinations, two ways to live, two types of hearts, anguish, pain, hurt, torment, and then heaven. Heaven, where all of our deepest longings and wants and desires and satisfaction would be filled, right? I'm reminded of the old sermons of Jonathan Edwards or Spurgeon, many others who preached. And I think even these guys shook in their shoes when stepping into the pulpit with the opportunity to preach this passage, knowing that much harm and damage could be done to people's hearts as well as much good. So my prayer, my prayer is that as God wrestles with me and my wants and my desires and my longings, that he would also, that he would also use this passage to confront every one of us in this room about the deep wants and desires and longings within our hearts and our souls. As we read these 13 verses, we have to remember the context that this story is placed in. Over the last two chapters, Jesus has been locked in this confrontation with religious leaders who have been grumbling and mumbling and complaining about him because Jesus was not the Savior that they wanted. He wasn't the Savior they wanted. He wasn't the leader they wanted. He wasn't the preacher that they wanted. Make no mistake about this passage. When Jesus ministered in this context, he ministered in most radical ways that drove the Pharisees absolutely batty. It drove them absolutely mad. Because his message of salvation wasn't based on performance and outward appearance. As a leader, he led a band of misfits who wound up turning the world upside down with the message of the gospel after the resurrection. He preached a message of the gospel or good news which made the kingdom of God inclusive to people that the Pharisees had excluded. This passage before us is a sobering story. It should be one which catches our attention. Sobering story because it's a story about two men and what they long for. It's a story about two men and the desires that drove them for eternity. This passage is meant to drive at the heart of what drives each and every one of us, moment by moment and day by day. It's a passage that's meant to drive at the heart of what drives us. It's, it's a passage that's meant to uncover what's been covered deep within all of us for so long. It's meant to strip bare, strip bare thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's meant to elicit a most important question for us. That question is this. What 
do you want? What do you want? This is the question that I hope gets driven home to each of us as we examine this passage this evening. What do you want? It's a basic question on the surface, but if you keep asking this question, you will eventually come face to face with a terrifying truth that will either drive you to your knees in desperation and hunger for the gospel, or this question will drive you deeper into the dark holes, the prison cells of your heart. Ask yourself, ask yourself this, what do I want for my marriage? What do you want for your marriage? What do you want for your kids? What do you want for your friendships? What do you want for the community of people that you are a part of? What do you want to achieve in this lifetime? What do you want for your education? What do you want in terms of earthly belongings and wealth? Never forget who Jesus is talking to in this passage. The Pharisees had set themselves up. They had set themselves up with all of their knowledge, all of their wealth, all of their status, all of their understanding. You ever dream about the American dream? Like the American dream is basically the dream that says that you can have the good life. The American dream says that you can build whatever you want. You can have whatever you want and whomever you want, anytime you want. You can feel whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can go anywhere you want. You can be whomever you want because at the end of the day, according to the American dream, you are the king of your life. All you have to do is do what you want, feel what you want, say what you want, achieve what you want. The problem with the American dream that's been sold to each one of us is it's a crock. The American dream is an absolute crock. We've literally been sold a rotting and useless false gospel when it comes to the American dream. You might be sitting here and you might be asking the question, what's the problem with the American dream? What's wrong with the American dream? The problem with the American dream is that it will never satisfy you. The American dream will never satisfy you. Build what you want, and here's what you'll find. You'll find that you want to build more to satisfy your hunger and thirst for accomplishments. Chase down everything you've ever wanted and consume it, and you'll come out the other side realizing that what you wanted to consume doesn't satisfy you either, so you better go chase down some more stuff to consume. Jump in bed with every person you want to, And what you'll find the next day is that what you took from that person in that bed that night will not satisfy you. And you'll wind up chasing down somebody else. What about feelings? Aren't we free to feel whatever we want? I try that on for size sometime. Feeling whatever you want. 
when you feel depressed and all you want to do is just eat all night to make yourself feel better, how do you feel a few hours later? What about when you feel lonely and you want to feel loved and so you sit up all night long watching inappropriate movies and watching pornography? Does it satisfy you? Does it? How do you feel after that? Think about this freedom of speech thing. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> this is a big American dream, right? I can say whatever I want, wherever I want, at any time that I want to. What happens when, what happens when, when what somebody else says something to you? What happens when that hurts really bad and really deeply and causes wounding? What happens then? Say whatever you want again. How do we get around this? The American dream is a crock. It doesn't satisfy. If you're not happy with who you are, then according to the American dream, if you want to be someone else, then by all means you can change your name if you want to. You can change your sex if you want to. You can change your hair color if you want to. You can change your address if you want to. Whatever you want to do, you just go ahead and do it if it makes you happy. Again, you are the king of your life, and you can do or get whatever you want. As I said already, the problem with the American dream is it's a crock because it will not satisfy you. I can ask this question. What do you want right now, in this moment, right here, right now? What do you want? Most of us walked into the room tonight with a list of things that we wanted, places we wanted to go, things we wanted to accomplish. We can easily make a list of things that we want to have, and many of us will spend the bulk of our lives chasing those things down, having no satisfaction. We will spend the bulk of our lives chasing every whim, every desire, every want, every longing. question we have to ask is this, if we get everything we ever wanted, before we die, will it matter in eternity? Verses 19 through 21 describe two very different men for us. One man had all he ever wanted. One man had all he ever wanted and the other man couldn't have anything he ever wanted. The rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. Catch that, fine linen. That's expensive underwear in our time. Okay? Dude went to Victoria's Secret for men. That's, that's, the, that's the parallel. Okay? That's the parallel in that time. Dude wore expensive underwear because he could. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple, he was clothed like a king. He had everything he ever wanted. He feasted sumptuously every day while at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And don't forget who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to us. How? Jesus is talking to us. We are one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the planet. I heard a story today about a, a missionary who was heading to Africa to minister to little kids whose daily income was less than $2 a day. Less than $2 a day. And we grumble and complain because we don't make $10 an hour. 
Jesus is talking to us. If there's anybody that I fear for more as I read this passage, it's those of us that know Christ. It's those of us that believe we know Christ. It's those of us that think we know Christ. Don't forget, he's talking to the Pharisees. They knew every Bible passage you could ever know. They could stand on the street corner and recite entire books of the Bible from memory. They stood on the street corners and prayed prayers that make us look like little children. They went to more VBSs than you and I could ever think of. Yeah, Jesus says, hey. It's basically saying, hey, you're just like this rich man. You've got everything you ever wanted, but there's people laying outside the door of your churches who need Jesus, but you won't share with them because you think this is all about you and not them. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to me as I look at this. I'll tell you what's even more heartbreaking is I sat out behind my house last night at a fire pit, nervous and fearful because I didn't want to preach this message in the church that I went to this morning, nor to this church this evening. Why? Because I was afraid to preach this message. Why? Because the deep desires and longings and wants in my heart are not what God wants always. I want to hide. I want to hide. I want to hide and be comfortable. I don't want to take us to that place that's uncomfortable because then I'm to blame for that. Poor man couldn't catch a break in this passage. Could not catch a break. But the rich man had everything he ever wanted. He had all the food he ever wanted, all the clothing he ever wanted, all the underwear he ever wanted. He had all the flat screen TVs he ever wanted. He could purchase anything at any point in time. And the poor man, this poor man laid at this rich man's gate Lawning scraps of food on the dinner napkins. All he got was a bunch of neighborhood dogs that came over and licked his wounds. Imagine this picture with me for a minute. Just think about it for a minute. You're laying at the gate of some wealthy man's mansion who has everything you ever wanted. He's got every single thing he ever wanted. And you're laying there at his gate and your, your entire body is an open wound and to even move hurts. And what do you get? What do you get? A bunch of dirty, stinky neighborhood dogs to come and lick your bleeding sores as your stomach grumbles for yet just a crumble of food. That's the picture. You put yourself in the place of the Pharisees who are hearing this. The Pharisees would never touch this man. They would never feed this man. They would stay in their high and mighty places. They would, they would never go and sit with this man. Why? Because to sit with someone whose flesh was bleeding and torn open in this way was to be in an unclean place. And in fact, in fact, if somebody like this man walked into the church today, right now, if this man came walking down our aisle today, what would happen then is everybody that was sitting there would turn around and stare like this. And then suddenly, suddenly, somebody in the middle of the gathering would yell, unclean, don't touch him, stay away. That's what would happen. It's the same picture as if a transgender walked into our church tonight and sat in the front row. What would we do if he walked in here or she or whatever? How would we respond? I can tell you how we'd respond by looking at our Facebook pages. It wouldn't be with the love of Christ. 
It wouldn't be. This is Jesus speaking to us and our wants and our desires. What do you want? What do you want when people see you? What do they think? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the deep sense of longing in that poor man? Can you put yourself in his place of suffering? Can you imagine what it must have been like just to want to eat the rotting food in the trash can? Maybe just to know somebody with a gun that could shoot the dogs that were licking the sores all over your body. You feel, can you feel the juxtaposition between these two men? Between the rich man who had everything he ever wanted and the poor man who had nothing he ever wanted. And do you know the median income for most families in this community is $42,000? $42,000 is the median income in Hastings, Nebraska. And yet, and yet, yet most Christians give away roughly 2% of their income. What do you want? What do you want to have before you die? If you were able to get everything you ever wanted before you die, would it matter in eternity? Ask yourself that question. What do you want for eternity? Like it's hard for us to think about eternity because we're surrounded with earthly desires and earthly wants and, and earthly troubles and, and, and earthly problems. But Jesus wants us, he wants his listeners to think about what they wanted for all of eternity. Pharisees who grumbled and complained against Jesus had only their earthly desires in mind. They weren't thinking with eternal perspectives. In verses 22 through 23, we see two very different destinations. Two very different destinations for the two men in our passage. Jesus tells us that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. All the poor man ever wanted was to get a few crumbs of food to feed his starving belly and all the rich man ever wanted was to live in a comfortable cocoon insulated from the suffering and poverty that lay right at his doorstep. We are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Most nations throughout the world, you got little kids living in trash heaps. And I'm concerned about what brand of tennis shoe I'm wearing. What the poor man got when he died was ushered into the very presence of the one who could satisfy his every want and his every desire. But the rich man got just the opposite. He got just the opposite. Even though the rich man lived this really extravagant life with everything he ever wanted, he lived this extravagant life hiding behind his fortress of provision. In the end, when he died, listen, in the end, when he died, he got everything he ever wanted. The rich man got everything he ever wanted. You might say, how is that? Got everything he ever wanted because all he ever wanted was to live apart from the presence of God's grace and mercy. How do I know that? Because someone who's experienced God's grace and mercy also extends it to others. Because someone who has experienced the very present of the only one that can satisfy 
extends that same presence to others. And this rich man did not do that. He hid out behind his walls, pretended, and he faked it. Do you ever want to shield yourself from the pain and the suffering of others? Do you want to be free of the inconvenience of other people's needs? Or find yourself in that place of wanting to live in a way that gives thought only to what you can get right now and no thought to eternity? What do you want for eternity? Do you want what God wants for you now or do you want to give in to your sinful desires for Self-gratification, it feels good now, do it. Self-preservation, I got to get mine and build my life. Or self-protection, I don't want to be around that stinky person. Where are you at in this? What do you want for eternity? Another way to ask this question would be this way. What will you want if you die apart from knowing God? It's the basic question of this text. What will you want if you die apart from knowing God? Like death comes for every person regardless of what you want. You can't stop death. It's coming for every one of us. You can't predict death. Regardless of how long you want to prolong your life, control your life, and predict the outcome of your life, the reality is that no one can stop death. No one can beat death. Death comes for everyone. The question for every one of us is this. What will I want if I die apart from knowing God? This is why verses 24 through 31 are so important for us because in these last final eight verses, we catch this picture of what it'll look like for us if we die apart from knowing God. These final verses paint the picture of the anguish and the torment and the hopelessness of dying apart from knowing God. As I sat on my back patio last night thinking of my own fear and my own wants, the biggest conviction that finally hit me in the midst of this is, why would you not want to preach this? Jesus preached this. Why? Because he loves us. If you die apart from knowing God, one of the things that you're going to want is mercy. You're going to ask for mercy. Grace means the extension of God's love, though you and I didn't deserve it, did nothing to earn it. Mercy is the withholding of God's wrath that we actually deserved. And the way, the, way that, the way that that wrath is withheld is not based upon anything you think, say, or do. It's based upon you coming to a place of faith and trust in Christ, whereby he changes your life radically. Like if you can't look at your life and see some sort of radical change from that moment till now, you've got to ask yourself, do I know him? Have I experienced his mercy? Because the one thing that you might want if you die apart from knowing him would be his mercy. Verses 24 through 26 Paint this picture of the rich man in Hades or hell. Apart from the presence of God, 
after living a life of indulging his sinful and self-preserving wants and desires. Like the rich man finds himself after he has died in the torment of Hades. And when he finds himself there, he immediately decides what he wants. He immediately decides that he wants someone to soothe his anguish. He wants mercy in the midst of his anguish. Mercy in the midst of his pain. He sees Abraham in heaven with Lazarus. He cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man cried out for mercy in the midst of his anguish, and Abraham answered the rich man's plea for mercy by saying this. He said, child, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. When you walked the face of that earth, you had good things. Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Lazarus had all the comfort he could ever want because he was in heaven in the presence of only one that could satisfy him. But the man with no name, the rich man, the man with no name, the reason I believe he has no name is because his name was not written in the Lamb's book of life from before the very foundations of the world. His name wasn't in there. Lazarus had a name. He had a name and a destination from before the beginning of time. He was an object of God's love. Lazarus' name actually means God helps. It's an old saying that says, God helps those who help themselves. Absolute heresy. God helps those who help themselves. That's a crock. You and I can't help ourselves. Doesn't mean you don't have some responsibility. Don't hear me wrong. God helps those whom he helps. Besides all this, besides all this, Abraham says, <coughs> besides all this, between us and you, a great, listen, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to here. You take this one passage and you put that in the face of all those people who believe that anybody and everybody goes to heaven because God's a loving God and will never send someone to hell. And you know what you got to do? You got to ignore this passage. All the Rob Bells in the world, all the real love wins crap that says, oh, you might pay a penalty for a while, but at some point God's love will win you back. No, I think my Bible says that there's a deep chasm a grand canyon, no one can pass from the realm of heaven to the realm of hell or from the realm of hell to the realm of heaven. Like, once you get there, it's eternal. You're there, it's done, it's over. The rich man is crying out for mercy, but the time for mercy has passed. The time for mercy has passed. There's a grand canyon that has been sovereignly fixed between these two realms. Hell is this place that is void, absolutely void of God's good, merciful presence. Heaven is this place that is full of God's good and merciful presence. People who live apart from God on this earth will continue to live apart from God in eternity. And when that reality is made clear, the only thing that they'll want at that point is to be comforted in their anguish by God's mercy. It's the one thing, 
One of the things that you'll want, you die apart from knowing him. The problem is that if you do not want God's mercy now then, even if you want it then, you won't receive it because hell is a place for people who reject God's mercy. While heaven is a place for people who rest in God's mercy now. Listen, if you live apart from God now and don't want anything to do with him but pretend like you do, God's not going to force you to go live with him. Why would he do that? Like that would be a hateful God who forces you to go somewhere that you don't even live now like you want to go to later. He's going to give you over to what you wanted the entire time. That's why this question lands here. What do you want? you die apart from knowing God, you'll not only want mercy, but you'll also want to warn others. Listen, when you and I experience something that is absolutely horrific, there's something within each and every one of us that instinctively wants to warn others not to go down that same path. Isn't there? This is why the rich man presses forward with Abraham. He realizes, oh, there's a great chasm. I'm doomed. It's over for me. There's no mercy for me. There's others. There's others. This is why Abraham says, but I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Even when we've lived according to the wants and the desires of our lives. Even when we've lived according to the wants and the desires of of our lives that have led us away from God, there is something deep within us still that wants to warn others of the suffering and the pain and the hardship and the difficulty, the need for mercy. Abraham's response is eye-opening, right? It's eye-opening when he tells the rich man that his five brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The point of what Abraham is saying is this. He's saying that those of us that are on this side of death do have a chance to listen to God's word right now. You have a chance to listen to the preaching of God's word right now and hear it and listen to it and respond to it. You have that chance to receive mercy. You have that chance. Abraham says, but they wouldn't even listen to that. So there's no reason to send someone back to the grave to warn anyone because all that we need to know about eternity has been written in the scriptures. This man referred to Abraham as father. What that tells us is that he had heard the truth of the scriptures. He'd heard the truth of the scriptures, but he had rejected God's word because he didn't want to listen to it. He didn't want to listen to it. What do you want? What do you want? You want to listen to God's word right now? Do you want to hear the rebuke of Jesus when he rebukes you? Do you want to live in faith-filled obedience to the words of Moses and the prophets, the words of Scripture? Jesus teaches us here that if any of us die apart from knowing God, we will want God's mercy and we will also want to warn others of the torment that the Scripture speaks so plainly about in hell. two kinds of people. You're either an enemy or you're a family member. There's only two destinations. We're either going to the place, the presence of the one who would satisfy us now 
so that he can completely satisfy us then? Or are you going somewhere where there is no satisfaction? It's all torment. I would be unloving if I didn't say that to you. It would be like standing in front of a railroad track and watching a train bearing down on my seven children and standing back and saying, I don't want to say anything because it might hurt your feelings. If you die apart from knowing God, you will want mercy, you will want to warn others, you will also want repentance at that point. Repentance is not a, it's not a good topic, right? We don't want to talk about repentance because we want to go on living our lives the way we always have. That's what we want. Repentance and hell are not popular topics to preach about. Both of them are biblical topics. That's why Jesus wants to talk about them when he's preaching. Repentance isn't popular in our world, and it wasn't popular then because to repent means to turn around and to walk the opposite direction from where you've been headed all along. Repentance means to reject all of your sinful wants and ask God to save you from them. Transform your wants into his wants so that you can now say, I no longer live as I want to. I now live as God wants me to. That's what repentance means. It's not a popular message because to repent means that you decide that you no longer want to sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because you realize that God wants you to live in purity. To repent simply means that you no longer want to blow your life on alcohol, drugs, cheap sex in the evenings throughout the week. The reason that you'd want to repent of that is because you know that Jesus would never treat his bride that way. Jesus died for his bride. Jesus died for the one that he loved. Didn't use her and abuse her for his own sense of self-gratification. That's what repentance looks like. It means we stop and we U-turn. Repent means that you no longer want to live in accordance with the wants and desires of your flesh because you realize that the wants and the desires of your flesh have made you an enemy of God. But by faith you can receive the love of God and no longer live in accordance with the wants and the desires of your flesh. Repentance is a hard message. It's a hard message that doesn't tickle the ears. But according to Jesus, who didn't preach ear-tickling messages, if you die apart from knowing God, you will want to see repentance. The reason that I see people turn their ear deaf to the message of repentance is because they've hardened their hearts against God. They've heard it one too many times. They've hardened their hearts. They've closed their ears and they've covered their eyes. They've shut down their minds and they've refused to repent. And what happens is the fruit of their lives is not repentance. It's sin. It's war against the God who loved you, who gave his son at the cross to be torn to pieces. I would never give my life for somebody that hated me. It would be so hard. Jesus willingly came and walked that path for you and I 
so that you and I would have the opportunity to bear the fruit of repentance. Here's the deal. If you die apart from knowing him, you'll not only want mercy, you'll not only want to warn others, you will also want to see repentance. Jesus makes this clear. He makes this clear in the final verses of this story about two men who lived two radically different lives and wound up in two radically different destinations. In verses 30 through 31, the rich man is still pleading with Abraham when he says, No, Father Abraham, please no. If someone would go to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham's response has this air of finality and completeness. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they do not hear the preaching of God's word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Meaning that if you do not believe the scriptures when they call you to receive God's mercy and to receive this warning and to then walk in repentance, if you do not believe the scriptures and the preaching of God's word in that, neither do you believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus which is available to you and I for the power of transformation and growth. if you die apart from knowing God, you'll want to see others repent. You'll want to see repentance because you will experience what the scriptures have always proclaimed, which is that you and I cannot beat the penalty of death. James says, what I want deep down inside, place alongside of the sin that is growing together inside of me, came together, got married got intimate, and had a baby. That baby's name was death. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God for all of eternity. If you or I were to die, apart from knowing God, we'll want mercy. We'll want to warn others. We'll also want repentance. There's nothing that will satisfy you in eternity. There's nothing that will satisfy you in eternity that you can pursue on this earth other than Christ himself. Every time you find yourself wanting that thing or wanting that person or, or wanting those wants and desires that you know are contrary to Christ, fall on your face and cry out for God's mercy and receive Christ in those moments and pursue him. He's the only one that can satisfy you. He's the only one that can satisfy you. We need someone who has beaten death. That person is Jesus. And the scriptures have always proclaimed him as our only hope. And the only place of eternal satisfaction through faith and repentance. And the question for every one of us here tonight is what do you want? What do you want? What do you want for eternity? And what will you want if you die tonight without knowing him? What do you want to believe? Do you want to repent? Do you want to be set free from the wants and the desires that control you? Do you want to be saved from an eternity of separation from God the Father? Do you want to receive God's love and mercy through the cross of Christ? 
You want to trust in Christ to save you from the penalty of your sinful wants? Do you want God to change your wants into his wants? What do you want right now? What do you want for eternity? What do you think you'll want if you die tonight apart from knowing God? What do you want? Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to preach your word tonight. Father God, as we enter into a a time closing in worship, I just pray, God, that you would reach down and touch many who are hearing this message. I pray for those of us in the room that have thought that we've known you for a long time. Pray, God, that tonight you would save many. Pray, God, for those who are here that are still just actively rejecting you with their lives, I pray, God, that you would bring about the fruit of repentance, that you would extend mercy, that you would give the ability to receive mercy, that you would help us to receive your love, that you would help us to be warned of what it would be like not to know you. pray that you would help us to walk with the fruit of repentance in our lives. Help us to look to the cross of Christ. God, help every one of us in this room to repent of the ways that we have desired and longed and wanted for things and people and habits that will not satisfy. Give us Jesus tonight as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close in worship, I invite you guys to stand with us. There will be two people near the front to serve communion. And as we serve communion, we invite you to come. The way that we serve communion, there's two people near the front. And you may take some of the juice and, and take a piece of the bread. The juice is symbolic of Christ's blood which was shed for you, poured out for you. The bread is symbolic of the body which was broken for you. As you come, think about the message of the gospel. Remember that this is the Jesus that we claim to believe and trust in. So if you're coming, we'd ask that only come if you're in that place where you're trusting in Christ, where you have believed the message of the gospel, where the fruit of repentance is obvious in your life. Why do I say that? I don't want you to come if you're here and you're not a believer. I don't want you to come if... If you're here and you're not walking with Jesus because to do so, to come and to do this would only to be engaging in mere religious activity. The scriptures actually say to come and engage in communion if you're not a believer or living in in outright open sinfulness without repentance is to drink judgment upon yourself. I don't want that for any of us. But man, if you're here, here and in these moments you're coming to trust in him maybe for the 50,000th time maybe for the first time if you're here and that's you I just invite you to come join the family as we feast upon Christ the only one that can satisfy our wants thanks for letting me preach love you guys 
You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 